Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's very finest and most exciting and very strange radio station. Uh, I mean strange, of course, in a good way and stranger thing we should preserve as we head towards Boris Ageddon. Uh He is Prime Minister. Boris Johnson is Prime Minister. How will he rule? Uh, Navarra FM, in one form or another, has been through several changes of government now. The coalition to David Cameron Solo, to uh, the Iron Lady, as was Theresa May, uh, and now to Boris Johnson. And each time, my co-founder, Aaron Bastani, and I have tried to take the measure of each government and see where they're going to go. And so we'll be doing this week as well. Aaron, it's great to have you back in the studio with me. It's always a pleasure to be on, James. Um, of course, we've both been writing about the incoming blonde void. Um, Aaron, I think your piece on the Johnson ideology, which listeners can find uh, at the Navarra Media website, is really useful. I've written about him for the New York Times uh, in an article that seems to have gone a bit viral. Uh, you can also find a more detailed piece that I wrote on the politics of the new administration over at the London Review of Books website. So uh, these are all useful primers, I think, as, the, the, uh, as we head into... The Boris period, but there's a lot more to say. Um, I, I, maybe the point point of starting here is like just to say how, if you if you'd said just a few years ago, if you'd said really even in sort of 2015, 2016 that Boris Johnson will be prime minister in the in the very near future, mm. I mean a huge chunk of the press, a huge chunk of the Conservative Party, not the base, which has always been very fond of him. But the, the Conservative Party, in, in terms of its kind of officials, would have said, that's, that's just not possible. There's no way that Boris Johnson is material to be Prime Minister. So, so maybe you can start there about how it has come to be that this man who was considered by so many people in the Conservative Party to be so unlikely and so implausible a candidate for mm. the ministry is now in the top job. Well, I think that's 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 partly fair. I think partly unfair. I mean, after two thousand eight, after becoming mayor of London, he was the second most prominent conservative in the country. Actually, in many ways, more uh, prominent than David Cameron prior to two thousand and ten. Had a very very high national profile. Mayor's office, obviously, is a is an executive role that, in in a lot of ways, gives you autonomy and media kind of coverage that you don't really get as a backbench or even as a member of the cabinet. So that's part of the part of the explanation. Uh, but then, of course, you have to conjoin that to the events surrounding Brexit 2016. There were very few leading conservative politicians who were willing to tie their reputations to that campaign. He took a big risk and it worked, but not in the way that he thought. He thought it would just lose and that he could become the tribune, the standard bearer of what is, broadly speaking, the consensus within the Conservative Party membership, which is to leave the European Union, and that that would make him the successor to David Cameron. Now, he's been the successor, with the uh, obviously, with the intermediary of um, Theresa May, but like we say, not in, not in the manner which he probably imagined. Also, I think what would have been really um, completely implausible for the Conservative Party establishment five years ago wouldn't necessarily have been Boris as a Prime Minister. I mean, that was always plausible, although unlikely, I grant you. But the retinue he's now surrounding himself with, the palette uh, and the tone of the Cabinet itself, mm. you know, you really are having the Taxpayers' Alliance, the Institute for Economic Affairs, a lot of these sort of very highly right-wing think tanks yeah. now entering the machinery of the civil service and government 
that would have been unthinkable five yeah. or six years yeah. ago. So that really tells you the character and the complexion of his premiership uh, and how it really does represent a massive break with with conservatism really since the mid-1970s. I mean, since Thatcher, and I talk about this in the piece, you know, it's, I think, potentially the final act of the Thatcher supremacy. Mm. But this is a very different conservative government to any that have gone before. Clearly, it's only the second day. We can't jump to massive conclusions. But I think it's a, it's a coup within the Conservative Party to a far greater extent than what we've seen within Labour so far. Mm-hmm. And even though he only has a majority of two, three in the, in the party at Westminster, you know, his base is the membership. Yeah. And people that dissent, disagree, um, go to the media and disparage the party's position when it comes to the European Union, they will not just potentially lose the whip down the line, they will be no confidence by local members and probably won't be the candidate at the next general election. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 certainly that's certainly true, I think, in terms of like the possible parliamentary manoeuvring. Something that is often underestimated is, is actually how beholden uh, conservative MPs often are to their local associations. I mean, I think I, what I would say, however, to that is that is that the reason I say that it was regarded as implausible is that, you know, despite the fact that there, there is, and I think the other factor here that we haven't talked about yet is media connivance, right? So Boris's entire career, and I really must stop calling him Boris, must call him, you know, Johnson. I don't like... Alexander. Alexander <laughs> Johnson. Al. Mm. Al, as he's known to his family. Um yeah, no, I, but but so so his kind of uh, derelictions or his failures uh, are essentially have have always been to a very great extent whitewashed by uh, by the media across the political spectrum, right? And this is true, obviously, of, of many of the right wing papers, but it's also been true of a lot of the liberal journalists as well who who are you know oh, well he's you know obviously a scumbag but you know he's a, he's he's just so charming I mean, the charm has always been lost on me by the way i've never really seen it but but anyway so i think that, that there is something here about the about you know the the way in which he's he's kind of effectively made a media career or the media has made his career on the back of saying you know this is you know, it, 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 there's a there's a uh, people talk about his charisma although it's not 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 really actually very often evident right i mean it's, a it's, lot of people that work with him as well historically have not really said that he was particularly charismatic yeah absolutely the sonia pernell biography yeah, for instance. i mean the sonia pernell bi- biography this is um uh, it was called blonde ambition it was written at yep. the end of his first mayoral term uh, and it's really really striking biography and i very much recommend people reading it i think it's probably the best book on johnson um but there, there is also a point here right which is that that uh that he's also the inheritor of the kind of, sort of ideological drift uh, of the country during the general election. So this is a claim that's made by James Meek, for instance, in the latest London Review of Books, an article that's mostly about really, really interesting digging into Jacob Rees-Mogg's Somerset Capital uh, and, and you know, the, the, the Rees-Mogg background. But but he does make a point that, that you know, that, that there is this kind of, uh, you know, repeated belief in, in the media that, that, that or, or, or even in most political commentary, that there's you know somehow, uh, be it you know some form of exit or be it some form, uh, you know, uh, uh, of, of solution mm. to the to the Brexit impasse, um, that, that this will somehow represent an end to the kind of politics uh, that kind of spun up from from the referendum, including mm. this kind of you know rampant uh, you know 
patriotism and policing of patriotism, yeah. you know, Islamophobia, uh, search for traitors, distrust of uh, institutions, this kind of stuff. Mm. And, and I, think that's, I think that's a very strong point, actually, that the, the, that kind of stuff is going to set the political tenor uh, for a Johnson administration. So, and so the idea that there could be any return to the status quo ante is a very, very dangerous mm. uh, and ultimately delusional uh, way of thinking about it. So, so in 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 this in you know, with that as the background, right? So this kind of Farageism, yeah, you know, unleashed. How far is is there a Johnson ideology, right? How far is there a Johnson ideology that's distinctive from that? Because he's probably, and you get this from reading the Pennell book, and you get this at kind of looking at uh, the positions that he's he's adopted when he hasn't felt pressure uh, to, and he he's very happy to compromise on almost everything. Right. Um, for him, you know, power is more interesting than, than, than what you do with it. Um, but how, how, how far is there a Johnson sort of ideology outside of that? Right? There's, there's not a Johnson ideology per se. There's a Johnson style of doing politics, uh. which, you know, sometimes one can bleed into the other. I mean, you could say very much the same about Donald Trump. His style mm-hmm. of doing politics does feed into a certain ideology of um, protectionism, opposition to multilateralism. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it's almost inevitable you'll be opposed to multilateralism if you're slagging off of the rest of the world. Uh, but I, I do think that's, it's particularly obvious with, with Johnson. So when I say a style of politics rather than an ideology, he'll do one relatively progressive policy whilst using that as cover to mask, you know, 20 highly mm. regressive ones. Mm. And that's a very interesting uh, political vehicle for getting what you want through whilst not attracting too much sort of negative press attention, particularly from the liberal media. Classic examples in London, you know, he was doing, you know, occasionally throwing a little bit of meat when it came to progressive policies and then doing, you know, just tacking right on pretty much everything else. And and that's really useful because people can say, well, look, they want to do X, Y, Z. Johnson will say, well, look, we've got the we've got the youngest, most diverse cabinet in history. Look, I want to offer an amnesty to undocumented migrants. Mm. Look, my first day I guaranteed this to all European nationals yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's classic Johnson. That's not an ideology, it's a style of politics, and it's quite flexible. Uh, but I think in many ways, you know, I, I, I was on Sky this morning with Claire Fox. She's an MEP now for the Brexit party. And what was strange that is that we agreed on a lot, not in terms of what needs to happen, but our assessment of the present moment. And you and I have been doing this show for a while, and we always talked about the possibility of a new political formation, new parties. Then in 2015, it appeared that, and that was a very salient conversation because of the SNP, UKIP, the Greens. Mm. It looked like the the party system was fragmenting. Uh, And then in uh, 2015, Jeremy Corbyn becomes leader of the Labour Party. And... First past the post means that the costs of entry are so high to starting a new organisation that even though we don't have the primary system here, mm-hmm. you effectively saw that beginning to imbue the Labour Party. Yeah. Something very similar has now happened to the Conservative Party. Now, if we had the primary system like in the States, we would have had something far in excess of the Tea Party, I think, actually. Mm. When you look at the, the, the strength uh, and the scale of sort of this right-wing default within the Conservative Party membership, if we had a primary system... Wow. It would basically be the Brexit party. Mm, mm. I mean, it, it, it's kind of looking like it's going to go that way anyway. <laughs> it is really striking, the, the kind of the really strong ideological drift within the, the, the grassroots of the Conservative Party. Obviously, it's sometimes hard to know about that. You know, the only reliable kind of polling stuff we have is the stuff that's done through the Conservative Home website. So this is, um, you know, which was actually a very good predictor of, yeah. of the outcome of, yep. of, of this result. And it really does show kind of this very, very strong move among the conservative base to these kind of strict like really hard 
right positions. Uh, I mean, they, they've always been there to some extent, right? Like they they love the death penalty. Yeah. They you know so and so on and so on. So in that sense, it's not a surprise, right? Um, but but on Brexit. One could have made the case, and I think should have made the case, and or, or it was a plausible thing to say in 2016, that at least a chunk of the Conservative base, and certainly most of the Conservative bureaucracy, would have favoured you know some sort of compromise deal that looked a bit like Norway, that looked mm. a bit like you know whatever. This is all you know, reasonably well known. That 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 is no longer viable in the Tory Party. No, like, it's just not no. plausible. No. And I think I think it's important to understand that that's ruled out. Just on Johnson's style of politics, I think this is this is kind of like really you know striking thing to put uh, you know in the mix here right is that there there is and again like I, I i'm very cautious about talking just about johnson's personality i think it's important but it's not the, the only uh, you know or, or the overwhelming factor here um you know the, the his stuff as london mayor you know is partly motivated by political sense that being hated is not great Right, mm. which I think is probably true. Uh, it, you know, Thatcher didn't mind it, but but he doesn't like it that much. Uh, the stuff of you know the the kind of like uh, adoption of these kind of signal policies to say you know oh, I'm doing a kind of mm. you know, new style of politics or whatever, you know, was also driven I think by the work of something like London Citizens while he was London Mayor, right? So they come to him and they say you know here's the two signal policies like uh, a living wage. Uh, and asylum for you know, existing people without papers, after which you know you can toughen up your regulatory regime mm. and stuff like that. So a one-time amnesty and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think you know this tells us something about you know left approaches to governments like this. Um, that actually you have to be careful about giving them cover. You have to be careful about working with them. Uh, you know, or giving them you know space in in order to take the kind of progressive mm. uh, credentials away from you. And I think it was a, a, a stunning miscalculation by London citizens at the mm. time, um, but perhaps in the space, that what, the political space of 2008, you know, whatever. Anyway. I was going to say, very salient for the US as well. Yeah, absolutely. In the early days of the Trump administration, when it looked like he was going to be a sort of economic interventionist and Bannon wanted a trillion dollar stimulus, Bernie Sanders said, I will work with the president mm. on if it means infrastructure, etc." And like you said, this would have been cover for yeah. a bunch of things that nobody on the left wants to see. Other thing here, and this gets on to the kind of political makeup of the cabinet and what that would look like in terms of sort of domestic government, is I think one of the things the left is going to have to realise is austerity is over, right? Uh, and I mean this in the sense that it's over as a kind of political formation. Its, it's consequences are absolutely not over. Its consequences are <laughs> very much being lived by people here. But in terms of political contention... Austerity is over, and there is a danger of the left fighting against a policy which is no longer held by the Conservative government uh, and hasn't been held by the Conservative government for some time. So this is, and, and this is because there has been a political pressure, and, the, and, and effectively the, the left has won the argument on austerity. Right? It's won the argument that austerity is like actually pretty bad for people. Uh, it's pretty bad, like, and people can see it and live it and feel it in their lives. Right? Uh, and, and this suggests to me that the political strategy that uh, the left will have to adopt vis-a-vis -a, -vis a kind of Johnson government domestically can't just be about austerity. It can be about universal credit. Mm. I think that's important. Mm. And there's been no sign from the Johnson government that they're going to row back mm. from implementation of universal credit. Uh, but what they have done in terms of, or what he has come out with in terms of his promises about, uh, you know, police funding, which is, of course, of a piece with, you know, Johnson has always been actually harder on law and order than people think. Mm -hmm. Always been harder on law and order than people think. Uh, and, and talking about school spending and NHS spending and stuff like this, is that 
the political you know basis of austerity is gone and to fight them solely on that basis uh, is to risk you know you know a government that's able to dodge the attacks because they say look we are spending so this is not true yeah. i mean on universal credit you could foresee effectively the johnson government implementing it with a few progressive things tacked on so you would change the sanctions regime um that would be one that would be a very quick way of doing it you know it's incredibly punitive in terms of you get you know the five week I, i'm not quite familiar with the the lag of five weeks and people mm-hmm. debate should be longer yeah. etc so the actual implementation of the policy could be tweaked. It wouldn't cost very much. And it would buy a lot of political goodwill. Boris Johnson could say, well, I did this. And in response to your point about austerity being over, I mean, in a way, it was over in June 2016. In a way. I mean, barely anybody has registered this. I think last month, the deficit went up for like the third month in a row or something. And obviously, with deficit figures, you can't just look at one month. That's ridiculous. But broadly speaking, nobody's talking about deficit elimination anymore. Mm. There is still a £25 billion, I believe, deficit, right? Which is actually quite small. As a percentage of GDP, it's between 1% and 2%. Okay, nobody's saying that's a huge figure. The left would run bigger deficits, potentially. But the point is, it was meant to be eliminated in 2015. There's still a £25 billion deficit in 2019. We made jokes about this in the early days of the show, saying there'll be a deficit until the mid-2020s, probably forever. Mm-hmm. And that is effective. If you'd said that on the BBC or Sky a few years ago, you would have been laughed at. But yeah. that is what effectively what's now happening, and um, it's just been it's just been sort of brushed under the carpet by the media. And so that does then beg a question: What was austerity? You know, what was austerity? Part of it was clearly a it was clearly the creation of a sort of political atmosphere by which you could do particularly egregious things. Uh, and, you know, to what extent was it a media confection? You know, I think, because clearly the media confection is definitively over. Mm-hmm. But will we see, for instance, continued pay restraint on workers in the public sector? Probably some parts of the public sector. Yeah, fewer I than, so. Fewer than over the last nine years, yeah. but probably some of the public yeah. sector. Would you see maybe interest rates go up on student debt, stuff like that? You know, we don't know. I mean, there is a big question to ask about the extent to which Sajid Javid would be um, a Keynesian. Yeah. The extent to which he might try and revivify demand. You know what? If we have a no deal, he'll have no choice. He'll, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, and again, so much of this depends on the Brexit stuff. But, but you know, I think it is important to think of austerity as this program, effectively, of restructuring of the state rather than, you know, anything to do particularly with uh, kind of fiscal uh, sensibilities. It's not, mm. it's not that. Um, I mean, I, I, I think... I think it's also probably quite important here then, or, or this allows us to come on to the question of the structure of the cabinet then, because we're talking a bit about Javid, we're talking a bit about like, what the priorities for this are going to be, because the, the, in some sense the, the problem for, for this stuff, uh, and the problem for, a, for one, a kind of Reaganite Keynesianism, right? So this is, this is the thing, like early, early Reagan, or the, the sort of first Reagan administration comes in as effectively like right-wing Keynesian government. Yeah. This is not often uh, really understood properly, mm. but, but, it, but it is true. Uh, that that's definitely one plausible path for Boris Johnson. In, in some sense, it's it's kind of the path of least resistance. Mm. Uh, Sajid Javid is probably more ideological, ideologically flexible on this stuff than he's often made out to be. But it's not his natural home territory. I mean, he is, uh, you know, by personal persuasion. You know, he's so very famously, perhaps not famously, it's a rather gruesome thought. But he um, he, he 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 seduced his wife by reading uh, chapters of Ayn Rand's novel to her, and I believe. Uh, reads it to her every 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 year and so it's a pleasing and somewhat gruesome thought um but it's a good thing he made lots of money yeah, <laughs> yeah well i Otherwise, mean so he, he his, wouldn't have stuck around his, his financial background is at deutsche bank he made all this money sort of selling you know these sort of rather 
uh, uh, dodgy sort of financial products. Uh, the, the financial of course, entirely legal. Just yeah. No, 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 yeah, yeah, no, absolutely <laughs> yeah. legal. I mean, there's lots of dodgy things that are legal, right? I mean, the, um, it's, it's very unfortunate, but but yeah. uh, but they are, and they were implicated in the um, in, in the creation of the. Uh, of the atmosphere for the financial crisis, not the only thing, of course. Um, so, what does the the makeup of this cabinet suggest about what Johnson intends to do? And I think, like on on several fronts here, we've talked a bit about you know the way it works with relation to the rest of the Tory Party, right? Mm. It's a really strong declaration. Yeah. Uh, but what does it mean in terms of the, the other two things here? Because Johnson has insisted that he's not just a Brexit Prime Minister, right? Mm. So, what does it signal in terms of domestic policy and in terms of Brexit policy? Still with domestic stuff first. Yeah, no, okay, domestic. I mean, Pretty Patel as Home Secretary is just, whoa. You know, if you think about Home Secretary, <laughs> Home Secretary as a role is uniquely is uniquely sort of placed. For, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful role for people who sort of have psychopathic tendencies. Uh, and I, I'm being absolutely deadly serious. Anne Widdicombe, John Reid, David Blunkett, Jack Straw, um, Charles Clark. Generally speaking, quite bad people, like bad human beings. Forget, forget... Political, you know, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. affinities, just quite authoritarian, bad people. Pretty Patel is much worse than all of those names I just said. Well, maybe not Anne Widdicombe. She, she's definitely worse than Anne Widdicombe. I mean, she wants the death penalty. Yeah. Um, she says she's rode back on her support for the death penalty since she very famously, uh, you know, used to make the public case for it. Well, like, that was only, that was definitely just she, a few years ago. <laughs> she was <laughs> very recently. She's been an MP since 2010, and she's yeah. definitely said since then yeah. that she oh, thinks we should oh, yeah, have absolutely. punishment. It's yeah. not like she said it. 10, 20 no, 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 years no, no. Ago. It's while she's been in, in Parliament. Yeah, she's, she's been an MP. On question time. I think anybody that says something whilst being an MP, clearly there's a different threshold in terms of taking it seriously. Absolutely. No, I think we should prior take it being a, yeah, yeah. being a parliamentarian. I'm just saying. Yeah, so I mean, that's the thing is, again, the Conservative base loves this. You know, yeah. they absolutely love it. I think there is a tendency here, though, like you say, Johnson wants to be liked. And if you want to transform, if you want to transform politics, whether you're Donald Trump, whether you're Margaret Thatcher, whether you're Clement Attlee, Jeremy Corbyn, you have to accept that a large amount of society is going to hate you, mm-hmm. rightly or wrongly, yeah. rationally or irrationally. Um, and does Boris Johnson have the personality type to do that? Uh, and it fits in with the whole, you know, Pretty Patel, you know, making overtures about quite right-wing policies when it comes to domestic affairs, uh, or Dominic Rabb just saying the most unhinged things as Foreign Secretary, um, or Jacob Rees-Mogg being Speaker of the House. This seems to me like it's very much about a, a presentation to the base. Yeah. But the overhead of that is that much of the rest of society who doesn't agree with that base really don't like you. Mm. And the question is, can Boris Johnson in his mind bring those two things together? Potentially he can, right? Because if your entire personal psychology is about attention and love and being adored, you're the prime minister. You're getting a lot of attention. So maybe he will be able to mitigate that desire to just be universally loved. Uh, But he's going to have to do it fast because the people he selected, like I say, particularly on home affairs, very, 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 very right wing. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of things here. One is like the ideological background of some of the cabinet and quite, you know, is the, so it's a real success, not just for the Vote Leave campaign, although it is, but a real success for the Britannia Unchained group Mm. who uh, issued this, this pamphlet back in 2012 which I think we talked about at the time. Mm. Um, and this was Dominic Raab, Pretty Patel, Liz Truss, um, that lot, who are all now either in cabinet or ministerial. Such a Javid. Yeah. I think. Uh, uh, no, Javid, Javid, because it was a group of new MPs and Javid had been in... He's 2010, no? Uh, I think he is. is, he, is he, but he, well, he wasn't an author of the right. report. He wasn't an right. author of the report, but he is ideologically very closely aligned yeah. to them. Um, but he... Uh, 
but but so this is that you know the the their their argument was British workers are kind of lazy. Uh, they're not like Asian workers who all want to be kind of STEM based mm. and successful and mm. want to do science and innovation mm. and will work long hours. You know, British workers are lazy. They like watching TV. They they don't work overtime. They're I don't know fat. Uh, <laughs> whatever. It, this, this is all kind of very kind of cliche. And and their solutions to this are uh, we want to. Uh, a bonfire of workers' rights. We want, uh, you know, Singapore-style buccaneering capitalism. Uh, you know, we want, uh, you know, very heavily kind of market-oriented research budgets for universities, stuff like that. So this is like really... S- Supply-side reform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's so make life absolutely miserable for everybody <laughs> so you have to work so hard just to get your head just marginally above the water. Supply-side reform. So that's, that's the kind of, like, the big ideological yeah. influence on this cabinet as well, I think. And then the, the other faction of this, or the other flip side of this not quite a flip side, quite a strong degree of ideological continuity, is, uh, and I wrote about this, like, I guess, like um, quite extensively in, in the recent piece for the, the LRB, is the, the ascent of Dominic Cummings, right? So this is the guy who is something of a hate figure for, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of hard remainers. He is, the, the, the sort of alt-centrist, yeah, really despise him. Yeah, um, and has this sort of rather fearsome and, I think, unwarranted justification yes. as being a sort of sinister genius. Yes. Uh, but he was the campaign director for Vote Leave. He came back with the slogan, Take Back Control. Um, he uh, has then, uh, he worked previously as a special advisor to Gove in education, where he did, where he sort of produced all sorts of sinister policy papers about, um, you know, natural inequality. Uh, he, uh, <laughs> since, 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 since leaving the, the Vote Leave campaign, he has uh, issued some extremely uh, eccentric and long-winded blog posts about, you know, the evils of the civil service, which he regards as sort of, you know, against excellence, against, you know, achievement, mm. uh, you know, the, 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 the wild incompetence of various parts of government. Uh, real loathing for the European Research Group, I think, as well, which is not, under, not often mm. widely understood. Mm. He regards them as sort of dangerous fantasists. Mm. This suggests something about Johnson's direction on Brexit, which is that he really would prefer a deal to no deal. It's not a no deal enthusiast in the same way that the ERG are. Uh, and then Cummings also, like, he just, just hates Westminster and just hates Whitehall. So this is a guy who is really going to be part of, uh, you know, I think a concerted... It signals that he's not going to want to make a truce with Parliament, mm. right? Like, Johnson sees that, that there's a need for yeah. a real showdown with Parliament. Yeah. Um, uh, Cummings was recently found in contempt of Parliament for refusing to turn up to select committees. Like, it's kind of astonishing, right? Um, and uh, and also sees that the, the Treasury is a real danger, right? So the Treasury is a danger in terms of his plans vis-a-vis Brexit, yeah. um, but also his plans perhaps vis-a-vis kind of domestic spending as well, yeah. right? So so the, he's, he's choosing someone who is, uh, you know, uh, uh, up for the war, He's a Tory with a theory of the state. Yeah, it's unusual. Which is very, very rare. Rather than just, you know, just understanding it as, you know, he, he views it as socially constructed and, and composed of competing forces rather than just the natural state mm-hmm. of affairs, which conservatives aren't meant to think like that. Yeah. Um, so that's very interesting. And then you compare that to Nick Bowles, who um, I was just looking at his tweets this morning. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I try not to make a habit of reading tweets, but <laughs> if you look at the stuff he was saying yesterday, this is just the first tweet because it, it 
sort of expresses the spirit of the thread. The hard right has taken over the Conservative Party. Thatcherites, libertarians and no-deal Brexiters control it top to bottom. Liberal one-nation Conservatives have been ruthlessly culled. Only a few neutered captives are being kept on as window dressing. Quite like the, the metaphors here. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, what he said is Thatcherites, libertarians and no-deal Brexiters. And what this got me thinking was, Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister for 12 years. Uh, Thatcherites? I mean, is that such a surprise? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I, what I feel like is, and I, I mean, I, I sort of this, I hope was expressed in the piece I wrote, is that they haven't, even though they've been in power for nine years, they haven't actually had an agenda for power. They haven't really known what to do. And if you think about, for instance, the global financial crisis, the Tory sort of, the Tory position on most things, once they became electable after 2005, was basically Blairism mm. with Cameron Osborne. Then the global financial crisis happens and they just pick austerity. But genuinely, I can't see much intellectual development on the right in this country after 1992, after yeah. Thatcher goes. Yeah. And, and 1992 to 2009, uh, 2019 rather, is a really long time. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, there are people like Dominic Cummings, yes. But the fact that so few people, you know, there are some smart people on the right wing media in this country. You know, there's a Fraser Nelson, there's that quite sharp analysis. But it does seem to me there's this huge absence of actually what comes next. And where you do have visions for what comes next, it's completely detached from the reality of Britain's political yeah. economy in 2019. And this is why I don't like the comparisons to Trump. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. you can have fascism in America because the United States has a highly militarized domestic um, apparatus. It's the world's only hyperpower. Everybody has to pay for trade with dollar bills. We don't have any of that. Mm. So the idea that we can become like a little mini United States and yeah, borrow us yeah, a little yeah, mini yeah. Trump is absurd. Yes, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think also like they just have very different economic instincts, right? Uh, uh, Johnson and especially this cabinet are not kind of autarkic economic nationalists. No. They're just not. They don't, they don't see capitalism that way. They don't see the economy that way. No. They're, they're much, much closer to kind of classic... I mean, you know, they, they, you know, Singapore of the North Atlantic is the kind of ideal uh, uh, place for them. But there's no better... I mean, that's the thing. So why do we join the European Union? We've talked about this so many times. We joined the European Union in 1973 because fundamentally British capitalism, after the Second World War, tied to uh, the Commonwealth, was no longer competitive. Why was that? Because we had effectively... Markets that couldn't go anywhere, they had to buy the things we produce. That's why British industrial exporters aren't particularly competitive. Mm. This car manufacturing compared to Germany, France, Japan, because we had these static markets, wasn't very competitive. That doesn't work, that model. We have lower growth, lower productivity growth than the rest of Western Europe. What do we do? We joined the European Union in 1973. So this idea that global trading, power, you're basically talking about the mid-19th century. What do we have then? Oh, yes. <laughs> we had an empire. We had a global army. You know, yeah. we had the Royal Navy. Yeah. Yeah. So in the absence of all these things, that, like I said, there's not really a political economy which underpins any realistic vision of what they want to do in government. Mm. All right. So the other flip side of this, obviously, is, you know, and the thing that's probably going to stop any kind of substantial domestic legislation on this coming through anyway. So all of this is like, that's definitely what they want to do domestically, right? We've, we've, we've talked a bit about that. But the problem is, is that uh, they have a tiny majority in the House about to be reduced, I think, again, in the Radnor by-election, which is almost certainly going to be won by the Liberal Democrats. And maybe with this chap who's just been charged? What? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, the, we'll, yes. There will be a by-election if he goes to prison, all, right? Yeah, well, I mean, there'll, there'll be a by-election if he's uh, in prison for a sentence of over Three a months. year. Um, 
No, no. Uh, an MP that's imprisoned for... Uh, but but the, the absence from the House means that there'll be a recall petition. Yeah, sure. Um, so what was the... With the Peterborough lady, was, was that because of a, purely because of the recall petition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, again, the sequencing is... Anyway, but yes, basically. Highly likely, extremely right? Extremely likely. This is a guy who, by the way, was brought back into cabinet by Theresa May, uh, you know, not into cabinet, into the party under mm-hmm. the whip uh, in order to try and bolster her... Uh, attempts to get her deal through. Anyway, so bringing any of this stuff, like, you know, any major legislative change, it's not going to happen anytime soon, is it? Because the only legislative time is going to be devoted to trying to do something about Brexit, right? I mean, that that's the overriding concern until October 31st, at least, right? Um, so Parliament is has now risen. Um, it's on its summer recess. Uh, it, it's back in early September for a couple of days before... Uh, party conference season. Uh, party conference season happens, and then we're 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 there. We're you know back at the end of September. We only have a month to the deadline, and the deadline that, that Johnson has promised promised throughout the campaign, promised in his victory speech, uh, promised in his statement to the House that that was going that is going has to, to happen. Be, that has, has to, to happen. happen. His, his his political fortune, yeah. the fortunes of so many people in the Conservative Party, are pinned on Brexit happening. On October thirty first. Mm. Now you can you can <laughs> you can you can put any part of that sentence in in well uh, the first two parts of that sentence in inverted commas could be inverted commas around Brexit could be inverted commas around happen. Um, but but there has to be something politically saleable that happens on mm. October thirty first. Um, so what will it be? I mean, so th- there there is some hope among uh, uh, you know the the softer wing of the Tory party, Theresa May wing, Jeremy Hunt wing, that something like the Theresa May deal could be like rebadged, you know, you know, put in makeup, mm. maybe with a tweak here and there, mm. something around the backstop, mm. maybe, mm. Uh, and pass through Parliament. Mm. That doesn't look plausible to but me. But it's also not, well... Boris Johnson was saying yesterday they're just going to get rid of the backstop. They don't this want is, the backstop. Yeah. Well, this is his condition for speaking to the EU, yeah. isn't it? So, I mean, it it just abolish the backstop. It wasn't, wasn't um, like, delay the backstop. Yeah. You know, but, no, but it was very abolish. confrontational. I think, and I think they're probably calculating correctly, the European Union wouldn't do that to the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. I don't think they would allow that. They cannot allow that to happen yeah. to the Republic of Ireland. So, and I think that's, that's correct. Um, so the question is, what do they do? I mean, they probably will, they probably will have to give us a deal of some kind like that. That that uh, meets the. I, I think I think that strategy. I don't agree with it, but I think that's more likely to work. The Boris Johnson strategy of give us something which we can take and that you can accept, because otherwise we will detonate the Irish economy. Yeah. Bear, bear in mind as well, Germany's right now is entering recession as well. Yeah, yeah. France, well, I mean, this is Mario Draghi's speech yesterday. France too. Yeah. yeah, yeah there's yeah. a lot. Of, there's a lot of economic fortunes riding on. I mean, No Deal really would be very, very bad for lots of people. So if you look at the incentives for various actors, there are very high incentives for a deal to get done. That said, like you said, it's a majority of two, three. Yeah. I mean, so that 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 I mean, just in terms of the process here, like, I mean, any implementation, any bill, any withdrawal, any new agreement would have to go through Parliament. Right? I mean, we can have extensions and stuff to it, and there can be something agreed, and you know, whatever. I, that 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 doesn't surprise. But but a bill as such will have to go through Parliament. Mm. That doesn't mean just approving the withdrawal agreement. It means, and we never really talked about this because there was no chance that May's deal was going to go through underneath her. Mm. But subsequent to that deal, there would also have to be an implementation deal, and that means 
the whole thing is going to have to, you know, is going to be open to amendment clause by clause. That's a huge parliamentary headache, even for the New Deal. If it's if it's a, if he has a majority as slim as that, um, so so that's one. Concern. Well, I mean, that's one concern. You get the DUP back on, you do have a majority. You have a, a working majority, which two or three isn't right. Let's be real. But then he would need ten to fifteen Labour MPs, which I think once he's got the DUP back on, because right now the primary kickback from people who would otherwise potentially vote for a government deal, something like a Lisa Nandy, it's an emotional and it's justified argument saying, well, we could, you know, we can't just go around reneging international treaties with other, particularly other European member states. So I think if they overcame that hurdle, I think it's it's perfectly plausible to get it through. But, you know, I, I, and I think it's more likely now with that approach than what Theresa May was doing of just effectively sending the same piece of legislation back to Parliament yeah. multiple times. But I, I just don't see... I mean, the thing is, is I don't, I don't see what can happen here until the middle of October on the European front. And the Europeans have already said, I mean, you know, obviously they came out yesterday and said, this approach is not going to work for us. It's the, 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 the withdrawal agreement is the withdrawal agreement. We can change things in the political declaration, can't change things in, in, in the agreement. Um, and, and that approach is certainly going to last until the middle of October. So there's the European Commission meeting on October 17th, 18th. Um, that might be somewhere where something might happen. But until then, I can't see any change in stance. But we are from... leaving on the 31st. Right. Le- the... Legally, so explain, explain yeah. this to me. Like, I'm not, I'm not, that's not some sort of piece of right-wing rhetoric. We are leaving on the... Th- like, our membership elapses on the 31st. Yeah. Yeah. So if a deal doesn't go through, let's say submits a bill to Parliament and it, 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 you know, it probably would just about fall short, like yeah, lose by five or yeah, ten. It's not going to... Yeah, no, but I'm just saying, so let's, because obviously on Planet Johnson it would pass. Let's just say it will fail by, let's say, yeah, 10, 15. Then what happens? Well, then he, but wait, what kind of bill are you talking let's about? Let's say that some kind of withdrawal, the withdrawal agreement goes back to the House. Uh-huh. It loses by 10, 15. Which it will. Yeah, I mean, probably. Well, I mean, he also wouldn't bring the withdrawal agreement back to the House. He just can't do it. Not not unless it's been substantially yeah, well, changed. Yeah, so it would first, be, right, because there'd right? be no backstop, yes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let's just presume that I'm saying he puts a, submits a bill back to Parliament, it doesn't work, and that's, say, a week out from the 31st, mm-hmm. or several days or whatever, and then the we, you know the 31st comes along. What what happens? Well, the thing is, is that it's going... It's very hard to tell what's going to happen in that last week. That's where the the pressure. And no, but the, forget that. I, mean, I mean, what actually, what happens? Let's say nothing. Let's, let's say no political resolution. What would happen? Uh, well, the the Britain leaves the European Union on uh, October thirty first, and it does so without a deal, and that means economic chaos in Britain. It means economic chaos in Ireland. It means. But, I mean, but, but, okay. but you're ta- you're saying if if nothing happens procedurally, between, procedurally, procedurally. So would, would all of a sudden would we have something for instance? like the army on the Northern Irish border, etc. stuff like that? Uh, well, that's a, I mean, that's, that's partly a question um, of negotiation between the two governments at that point. Uh, it's, very, it's very hard to know what would happen in terms of the Irish border uh, at that point. It's like, I, I, as much as, but yes, that's certainly one plausible outcome. Uh, I mean, it, again, like you could see a situation in which, say, Johnson uses... A combination of treaty and prerogative powers and secondary legislation to put in place a bare bones arrangement, which means yeah. 
Uh, Ultimately, they have executive power, right? That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, but you know, there are there are serious problems and the serious consequences to that. So, of course, I mean, that, that that you know, in terms of you know, it doesn't stop the economic consequences for the for the UK and European Union. I, 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 I'm obviously pricing in the economic catastrophe, yeah. but I'm just wondering in terms of actually how you would implement the nuts and bolts. Like, so for instance, would he be able to deploy something like the Civil Contingencies Act? Yes, where they were just, yeah. you know. Yeah, that that would certainly. I would imagine that would come into play. Yeah. So it's just basically, you know, requisition. The ports all of a sudden are being manned by state apparatus, etc., yeah. rather than private yeah, companies yeah. overseeing yeah. duties and so on. Yeah. Um. Yes, that's certainly plausible. Um. Uh. I mean, the, the, the <clears throat> you know, it's very, very, very hard to predict what would happen. In this. It's never happened before, uh, and it's not clear what the the UK's kind of constitutional backup is for this kind of situation. It's, it's really very, very hard to know. Very hard to know. What's well, that Tom Kibassi said, um, head of IPPR, when we spoke to him on Tiski Sa, he said it's analogous to a country imposing sanctions on itself. Yeah, it's, it's re- like, I really, <laughs> I really, like, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not withholding anything here. I'm saying it's very, very hard to know what would happen in that situation. Partly because, you know, you can see, like, every actor here in that last, you know, few weeks, doesn't want this to happen, right? I mean, it, I suppose it's vaguely plausible that Emmanuel Macron could throw a bit of a tantrum in the, those last few weeks and say, you know, this is going to be, you know, very painful, but we, we may, we've got to do it. Uh, that, that's possible. I think it's unlikely, but it's possible. But everyone else... Uh, has has you know will be panicking in that period no one wants to weather the storm of a, 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 a see the the economics i mean but, but how, what do you see then what do you see then in 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 that space in in that space between say the, the commission meets on the 17th and 18th yeah. right um you can then pro- if in that situation it looks like there's no deal that can pass through the uk parliament yeah I think you can see a series of sort of emergency sessions where you might see some sort of cosmetic, uh, you know, attempt at, at changing something cosmetic in uh, uh, in the political declaration. I can't see the withdrawal agreement being reopened for negotiation there, partly because it's then a procedural nightmare for the European Union as well. Mm. Um, whether you see some sort of attempt at an extension, which I think, you know, is possible a sort of no deal extension is possible in that case you know, uh, well there are shades of no deal there's orderly no deal and disorderly no deal so maybe yeah, this would be I an mean, orderly no deal with the potential of more disorder down the line yeah. you know there's the N- NIESR this week did some of the economic modelling around no deal and what it would mean and actually the, the economic recession that would follow would be relatively small if, if you had massive amounts of state spending yeah, right, okay. No, no, no. That's, no, no. Like, that's a massive if. No, no, but you'd obviously have to because all of a sudden you would have to hire, you know, thousands of new border guards. Yeah, you yeah, need yeah, to, yeah, yeah. You know, you would need to create, you'd probably need to nationalise the fishing industry. It's, mm, it's quite mm, ironic that the party of Margaret Thatcher is willing to nationalise industries in the, in the name of leaving the yeah, European yeah, Union, yeah. but there we are. I mean, but that, that, I mean, that's a really important thing to say is that, you know, and I think the left's been quite weak on it, is that even the economic consequences of no deal... They'd be, in the long term, over 20, 30 years, they'd be very negative. But in the short term, they may be relatively minor even compared. People, are, I saw Aisha Hazarika going, oh, well, austerity, yeah, it's bad, but it'll be nothing compared to no deal. 120,000 people died because of austerity so far. We've had flatlining productivity wages for 10 years. It's perfectly plausible that no deal isn't a patch on that. 
Uh, yeah, it, I mean, I mean hundred twenty thousand people dying is a lot. Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, there are there are there are problems with the the kind of the consequences of of that. Meaning that the structure of the UK economy is not in a position where it can actually deal with a no deal Brexit and the consequences thereof. Right? Like, I mean, something that's so kind of hollowed out and dependent on. Uh, you know, something like the financial sector, for instance, is like anyway. No, I, I agree with you. I, and again, I, there's, I another, to, there's I, an argument there about passporting rights. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I want to, I, I, but I want to just step back for a moment and say, okay, but but before we get to that point, before we get to that point, October thirty first, you've got uh, presumably, if that looks like it's coming down the line, then what you'll see is an attempt at parliamentary action to foreclose the possibility that a prime minister can act in this way, right? Yeah. So you will see probably a motion or attempt at a motion passed in Parliament mm. um, to prevent or to rule out no deal. Mm. I am not completely convinced that would be successful mm. at all. Mm. Um, I'm not at all convinced that, that would be successful because I think if you look at the recent vote to attempt to remove the option of prorogation uh, for a prime minister... Mm. Um, that had that passed with 315 votes, right? I think that tells you that that's probably the maximum ceiling mm. for for an anti uh, an anti no deal vote. Look at no- and I'm not sure that everything you know. That I'm not sure that that that, that everyone there would vote uh, you know in support of a parliamentary motion in that way. So, but, but Joe, Joe Johnson, yeah. was meant to be this like second referendum. We must stop Brexit, and he's now in, in the cabinet. In the cabinet, yeah. So I mean, that tells you a lot about these kind of quote unquote progressive conservatives yeah no i mean i think if you're relying on conservative spines then then you're probably doomed yeah. amber, mean, Rudd, amber rudd's another one yeah, parliamentary yeah. labor party spines as well actually frankly but um I, I mean but that does mean in in that situation then he can say okay well parliament is trying to stop me so in that situation he could move for a general election right he could say to the european union need an extension yeah uh, so I can go for a general election, have a mandate that would change the, the nature and the makeup of Parliament. Yeah. I can then pass yeah. things that I need to pass. Uh, I think that's entirely credible, and I think it's actually increasingly likely. But like you say, he's been repeatedly saying we will leave come hell or mm. high water by thirty first October. Which that you know, I mean, that's a pretty decisive, bold move, but it's not that. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, there's more pressure on him than we might think. You've got the Brexit party on one side, you've got the Lib Dems on the other, you've got Labour on the other, and you've got this majority of two or three. Mm. You know, it's very, very. You know, those, those, the, the, there's, there's a spreadsheet here. That's what's going against him. What's going for him? I think the, his biggest card is his membership. Yeah. You know, he can remake Boris Johnson right now. Can remake the Conservative Party in such a way that Margaret Thatcher could not have dreamed of. You know, they can remove pretty much any dissident MP. Um, and if he had a majority, with that, I mean, you'd be seeing a massive recasting of the British state very mm. quickly, especially if it was outside the European Union. That would very much border on, within the parameters of constitutional democracy, a revolutionary political project. So that's as close as you're going to get. Yeah. Um, and, you know, actually, there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there for the left. I think when I was looking at the appointments yesterday, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, even as most adventurous, would not pick a cabinet, I think, that radical. No, well, partly because he'd find it difficult within the existing parliamentary Labour Party to find people. No, but even if you had the right people, I mean, you know, Boris Johnson literally 
could there was nobody there that you thought i mean it was it was just completely it was, it was completely overboard yeah, you know? yeah yeah absolutely okay so so what I, I i i just want to sort of think about the kind of um you know what's going to happen then okay or or or, or cuz because at the moment he's got probably a little bit of a bounce he's certainly got the media doing the thing that they always do with new tory leaders which is like oh he will be unbeatable he will you know uh, drive everything before him etc 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 it's like such <laughs> It's it's a standard response to a new new Tory leader. It's, it's very very predictable. It doesn't seem to me that his hand is that strong. Actually, mm. um, it it seems to me that so if he were to move for a general election prior to October thirty first, he has to accept that the Brexit party is not going to be you know a, a, a vitiated or negated political force, right? Mm. Uh, and and he can't make an explicit deal with Nigel Farage. He just can't do it. Uh, it. It's not plausible for him to do it and attempt to retain the current electoral geography uh, of the Conservative Party. In any case, he's going to lose some seats in the South uh, to, to to the Liberal Democrats. Well, they're that quite, levy, they're quite levy seats, that's the thing. They're quite mm, levy seats. Yeah, I know, but the, the Tory vote there is not completely... Is, 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 has, has, still has a strong Remain component. These are people who are very soft Tories mm. and who have voted Liberal Democrat in the past. You're thinking here of sort of the halo around London, for instance, yep. which definitely has... I mean, Stockbroker Belt definitely has its Brexiteers. Um, but I think you're going to see a lot of those seats, you know, come come much closer and probably fall into Liberal Democrat hands. In which case, you have to a- attempt to make it up, maybe in some Brexity seats elsewhere. You're thinking, you know, John Mann's seat, maybe uh, these kind of, uh, you know, very you know, very heavily leave Labour seats. But Boris Johnson winning those seats that doesn't seem necessarily plausible, plausible to me. Plausible. I mean, look at look at. Um Peterborough. You know, we just won Peterborough in that by-election mm-hmm. recently. The Brexit, the combined Brexit and uh, Tory vote was massively above Labour. You know, there's many, many, many seats like that. Yeah, many, but, many seats. but if he's running pre-October 31st and, there's, and the Brexit party splits the Tory vote... Oh, no, then he hasn't got, then a, he hasn't uh, got a chance. chance in hell, so, no. so he would then have to wait until after October 31st and run a general election then on having delivered Brexit, but what kind of Brexit has he delivered? And in which case, you know, the question then becomes whether the Labour Party can hegemonise uh, a Remain or a, 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 a you know, an anti-Tory vote. Mm. And I think that's an open question. We'll come to the Labour Party in a minute. But it doesn't seem to me that these, you know, so the other option would be to try to ratify via a second referendum, which would be a political nightmare they for him. They can't touch that, no. Uh, and, I'd, you know, it would be a, a procedural nightmare in Parliament anyway. So, so it does look like a general election, yeah, is 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 a big question for him because the other thing here is legitimacy and there will be and I think there are increasingly rumblings about legitimacy and this man hasn't won a general election he hasn't yet passed a Queen's speech he has a wafer thin majority and he's changing the ideological course of the parliament like quite quite strongly yeah but I mean there was you know in was it 2017 we didn't have a Queen's speech in 2018, right? No, it's been a two-year session of Parliament. Yeah, but that's—I mean—that's happened before. Did it happen in it's 1923 yeah, it's, or something? Yeah, it's rare. But it does happen. It happens. No, 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 absolutely. Um, but but it's rare for a reason, which is that it is understood that the Prime Minister is the Prime Minister because he or she can command the confidence of the House of Commons. And one of the main ways of testing that and main ways of setting the base for a legislative program is mm. to pass a Queen's speech. But that's paid. I mean, we've known again. We we've known that since 2017 yeah. that there isn't a majority. In in the Commons. I mean, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. And it just shows you the extent to which politics now is just mediatised because the media 
feigns a majority for the Tories, and yeah. then that's yeah, yeah, absolutely sure. It's meant to be the same thing, but sure, obviously, but I think I think that is I think that is important, and there should be rumblings about that, and there increasingly will be rumblings about that, especially if he brings sort of new domestic programs forward. Um, anyway, but, from but, but what I'm saying is that all of the where? options for him from the from from the Parliament, you know, I mean, I think, and I think. It should be coming from the media as well. I don't expect the media to act as, you know, effective scrutineers for a Johnson government necessarily, but it should be coming from them, and there should be arguments about its legitimacy. I mean, it's, it's not my. I mean, I know it's my default to slag off the media, but I'm not. I'm not doing that in this instance. I just think that it's such a clear case for constitutional transformation of the country that the BBC can never report it properly. You know. This is, I mean, we could be looking at the end of the Westminster model that we've known for, you know, yeah. well, clearly since the 1830s, yeah, yeah, the Great yeah, Reform yeah. Act. It's clearly on its last legs here. If you're going to report that accurately, that's going to really get some... Yeah, some no, I mean, in, in fact, I mean, one of the things that, that, that um, you know, that that, that that opens up and, you know, it, it does suggest it to me is, is that quite a question that faces the Labour Party now, really, in terms of how it deals with the Johnson government? Because one of the things I think that is... is has been quite striking throughout the sort of Johnson ascendancy is is like watching Vox Pops and, and you know, and, and reading polling and stuff like that, you know, is... Well, one, Johnson is not wildly popular in the country, right? Mm. He's got the highest net negative of an incoming prime minister, I think, in, in you know, recent political memory. Um, you know, and that's not nothing, right? Like, the, the, a good 60% of the country, you know, are looking at him and going, not sure about this. Trump had that, and now he's got 50% approval rating. Absolutely. Ratings. Trump also controlled, uh, you know, the entirety of the, the legislature in, in a determined way until, course, the, course, until course. the midterms. But, um, you know, I, so I, th- I think that's important. Um, but the question is about how, how, how then the Labour Party responds to a, a Johnson ministry. Uh, and I think it's not the same as it responds to a Theresa May ministry or had responded to a Theresa May ministry. Uh, and I think one of the things that, that has been, I think, difficult for the Labour Party... It's not just Brexit. We should talk about the Labour Brexit position because I think it has to change in response to, no, I agree. to this. Um, but it's also about that constitutional question, that question of like institutional transformation. And, you know, John Trickett has done bits and pieces of work on this in the Labour Shadow Cabinet, but it hasn't really come into conversation with the sort of, you know, quite radical ideas being put forward from the Shadow Treasury team, for instance, mm. in terms of policy. Mm. Like that's an eco- they, they envision an economic transformation of Britain, but we've been very quiet, mm. um, you know, uh, when, when, it, when it's come to questions of institutional and democratic transformation. And one of the things that is really visible in polling of the sort of Boris Johnson base mm. is that they're anti-democratic. They're really frustrated with democratic process. Mm. They're really frustrated with actually having to pass things through, uh, you know, a democratic chamber. Mm. They don't like, uh, you know, they, you know they, they're very, they respond very favourably to a sort of, you know, uh, Bonapartism or Caesarism, uh, uh, you know, the idea of a very strong leader, uh, you know, riding roughshod over democratic process, which incidentally Johnson has been in the past. He, he you know, uh, he, he very happily sort of uh, fired Ian Blair when it actually wasn't. Anyway, that, 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 but he, he, you know, he has that element to him and he certainly has that element among his support. And I think, you know, there really has to be some awareness of, of, uh, of the need for a defence of socialist democracy and a vision for democratic transformation uh, and without it I think the party's dead No I agree with you and I think the last few days well obviously yesterday's the first day of the Johnson premiership and you want to 
uh, collect your thoughts. You don't want to jump to any conclusions. But the Johnson sort of first 48 hours worried me. And I'll tell you why. It was the first time since 2015 where you have a conservative party leader who potentially grasps the zeitgeist as well, if not better, than the Labour Party leader. Regardless of polls, uh, David Cameron or Theresa May never really got the zeitgeist. Their thing, the, the, the energy they were trying to channel was never uh, the same as Jeremy Corbyn, about taking on vested interests, about breaking with the establishment, about complete transformation. The system is broken. Boris Johnson's now saying all of those mm. things. And I, I really feel like Labour likes it has to dramatically change its message, both in terms of content and form. Uh, and in terms of the Brexit position, I agree with you. I think increasingly, I know Owen said this recently, Asher said it recently, I think we probably will need some kind of referendum. But the problem is it'll have to have no deal on it. It will have to have no deal on it. Um, and I think it'd be very, very close. I think it's be far closer than many people realise. Yeah. Uh, but I think you would... And the, but the way you bring in levers is by saying, look, Lots of people didn't make the decision in a particularly informed manner. We're going to give you your absolute best case outcome here. The idea you could have like a government deal versus remain is ridiculous. That's not going to please anybody who wants to leave. So, uh, you know, I, I think Labour probably will have to back that position at some point. But bloody hell, that's, excuse me, I shouldn't say Ofcom. Even, <laughs> even the B words pretty much this time of day. That is very, very, very uh, ridden with potential difficulties. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And I think, you know, like, as much as I, you know, as much as I, 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 I don't know, I have, I have had sympathy for the difficulty of the Labour Party Brexit position, which I think is not uh, an, a, a, an outgrowth simply of, you know, the leadership's intractability or, you know, some commitment to uh, an old 1970s model of Benism. It's mm. a genuine reflection of what is a very difficult uh, you know, split across the country. I, I think that's fair and nice. I think it's also over now. I don't think you can speak to people in that way anymore. I don't think that constituency is there. I don't think it can be recreated. Mm. Uh, I think the drift of the Labour electoral base and the drift of the party is towards uh, a second referendum, certainly, and towards a Remain position in that second mm. referendum. Or think, Remain contra no deal, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, yeah. That, that yeah. would be the choice we'd yeah. have to offer, I think. Yeah. Um, but look, I mean, I, I just want to say the other side of it, right, is that actually, you know, Boris Johnson has wanted to be prime minister for so long. He's faced with a series of incredibly unpalatable and actually politically quite difficult choices, right? Um, you know, his, his attempt really is going to be, uh, you know, I don't know, sort of 1910 situation of attempting, you know, to force, you know, to, to, to change electoral mandate. It, you know, he could end, you know, if he ends up doing a general election, he could end up as like Ted Heath uh, in the 70s and, and sort of, you know, screwing the pooch, really. But, you know, so, so I, I don't think things are as easy for him as is made out. And I think, you know, that there are significant weaknesses to this government, not least their kind of obvious ideological complexion, but it requires uh, that the Labour Party is able to focus on those problems rather than its sort of own interminable sort of internecine squabbles. Can I just say quickly, I mean, you talked about the, the deficiencies with the Brexit position and the inability to make a a clear case for constitutional reform. You have to remember, there are only about 15 good Labour MPs. Yeah. The rest of them aren't just, they're not just sort of net neutral. 
they're not just time wasters. They are actively sapping the energy mm. and ideas yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, from the project, generally speaking. So to transform the party, to be in opposition, to be the next government, you know, John McDonnell's doing lots of stuff about preparing the way for him being at the Treasury and to offer, you know, a vision for constitutional reform. When you have so few people investing in it, very, very difficult. That's why I've always supported mandatory selection. Yes, uh, I also am historically a supporter and continue to be a supporter of mandatory reselection. It's an obvious need, I think, from left position to to democratise in that way. I would just say, um, you know, the other thing here is, like, remember the virtue of rule-breaking, right? The first ever Labour administration uh, was furious when it returned to opposition and watched people come off the gold standard and say, well, no one ever told us we could do that. It's not about what people tell you you can do. It's about breaking the rules, and Boris Johnson knows that, uh, and the Labour Party has known that when it's at its best. Anyway, uh, what's, uh, final question, about a minute left, just under a minute left. Will Brexit happen? On balance, no. Oh. I'd say 55-45. <laughs> I think i go 55-45 the other way, yeah. I think, because I'm historically a pessimist. I think no deal is coming down the tracks, and I'm not sure that there's much that can be done to put it out of the way. Uh, we will, of course, uh, keep you updated throughout the summer break, but there won't be any live shows for the month of August. Uh, we will be uh, putting out stuff as the political situation develops. But this has been Novara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, we will be back soon. Goodbye. This show is brought to you by Novara Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to novaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.